All right, so last week we began a series. Uh, sorry, there's no cute little transition between that, so I'm just going to like, move over here and, and jump right in. Uh, we started talking about that words have power. And uh, the uh, introductory message where we went was to kind of go a little bit deeper beyond just uh, the many verses. And there are many, many verses inside of Scripture that just talk about, you know, thou shalt not lie or to build up one another or, you know, just out of the heart, the mouth speaks, and all those different, uh, very practical, uh, very useful verses that we could have went to. Uh, instead, we uh, took that first to jump into what it means to be made in the image of God, and that part of being made in the image of God is this aspect that uh, we have the responsibility, we have the ability uh, to use spoken word, uh, to give honor and glory to Jesus Christ inside of how we live. Means that uh, your words are a ref- reflection of who you are in the same way that Jesus is a reflection of who God is. And so we ended last week with a question, and uh, if you were here, if you were not here, I'm, I'm going to give you this question again. Uh, and I said that this wasn't about uh, giving a guilt trip, but it really was an evaluation tool for us. That if I were walking alongside of me, listening to me, what would I conclude about me? And so if I had the opportunity to objectively just through my words alone, evaluate what would I know about this person just on what comes out of their mouth, what would I conclude? And so I don't know if you had the opportunity to do that. I hope that you did. I'm going to give you just a couple of things that I thought about uh, this week. The first one, uh, this is not going to be a big revelation, but nevertheless, it's something that I thought about. Two-thirds of the words that I use are unremarkable in terms of having any emotional spiritual, redemptive value. One of the things I noticed I began to think is two-thirds of my words are yes, no, for, uh, supersize, please. Like, no, that's, uh, that, that, that didn't happen. And, um, and I'm not, not going to say they're unimportant, but one of the things I began to think about is I wonder if one of the reasons it's so hard and you find yourself, well, why, why did I just say that or where did that come from? It's because we're so used in, into our busy lives that most of the time words are just tools to get us to the next moment. You know, we're just answering a question. We're just, you know, giving some form of instruction that really has no moral component to it. Yes, I mean, we have to watch our tone and, and different things, but uh, I wonder if the, it sucks us in because two-thirds of our words really are just what it, how we get through life, and then with the other thir- one-third, we think, ooh, I should have said that differently because I've just been in the realm of just going through life and all of a sudden those words were more important than the 150 that came before it and not sure what I missed. So that was the first thing I thought about this week, and I don't know if if any of you did or if that's helpful. The second is something that I've always known to be true is my mood and my tone are sometimes way more important and way more uh, influential inside of my words than I realize that what I'm thinking and feeling in the moment colors the response that I make. And so even the same words can come out differently based on what I'm doing, what I'm feeling, and, you know, the context in which I engage. The third thing that I thought about this week is I had a couple of very difficult conversations, and uh, one in particular uh, was not even related to St. John's. It was in regard to another ministry that I'm a part of, and in some of that very difficult conversation, again, was just reminded of something I know to be true, and that is I can't control the outcome or how people always receive my words, but I am directly responsible for my 
attention and doing everything that I can to be loving in, inside of my correspondence. So those are just a few things. That's not the sermon for the morning, but that's just uh, a couple of things that I thought about. I would love to hear what this exercise maybe taught you, and so drop me an email if you want to see me afterwards. Uh, if you did it, if there was anything at all, and you know, I don't know that you know, grand revelation comes out of doing something like this, but if you did happen to discover something, I would love to hear about it. This morning, I, I want to talk a little bit about our culture and a little bit about the world in which we live because again, if, if mood and if tone and if our context a lot of times shapes our wor words, you know that you live in a world that is increasingly more difficult to be loving, to be Christian, to be centered in on what's most important uh, because there are so many things that press in around us. And so I'm not going to go on for the next uh, 20 minutes or so and rail on Facebook or social media or how you should be nicer to people or stop being so busy or stop being so consumer driven or any of those things when I talk about culture it's not going to be that type of message as much as to point out some things that are true so that on the one hand we can ask the question is any of this true of me or in what ways is this true of me because you are a member of this culture and so even if you notice it and rail against it sometimes those same things are active inside of how we live and the second is do we minister and engage inside of that culture? Because you've not been placed here by accident, and you've not been placed here just to survive in your faith, but to thrive in your faith. So that's what we're, we're going to talk about. It is tough out there. It's difficult. This is an exciting time to be a Christian with all the different advances, and the fact that you have uh, you know, the Bible right at your fingertips on, on your device. You have a wealth of information on any topic available to you. You have the ability connect with people around the world, uh, people that you've not seen in 30 years you can reconnect with. It's an amazing time, I think, for the gospel, and yet it's also a difficult time to raise teenage boys in. It's a difficult time to try to be centered inside of living biblically in a Christ-centered life. But I believe this is where we've been placed. We are not going back to 1995 or 1965 or this is the context in which you and I have been placed. And one of the phrase that's, phrases that's always been uh, told to me is, you don't control where you're placed, but you have the opportunity to bloom where you're planted. And so you live today in a world with uh, Facebook, in a world with uh, Netflix and Internet and Grubhub and the opportunity to have a robot vacuum and all the different things that we thought would never come through from the Jetsons have come through for the most part, except for the flying car. Um, but, you know, all these different things uh, that make uh, today so complex, this is where you live. I thought of this week as I was preparing this, uh, that, that in the book of Esther, that phrase for such a time as this, that young Esther did not choose to be in the place where she was in the time where she was, with, with the opportunities, responsibilities, hardships, difficulties, no situation, everything that made up Esther's situation, but yet she was reminded, maybe God placed you here for such a time as this. And I don't think it's a mistake that you live right now with your relationships, with your gifts, with your skills, with your story, that you live right now. The theme for this morning is me megaphones and earplugs. Megaphones and earplugs, and I think it's a fitting image, and I have a couple of these images, that this is the world in which we live in. 
that more and more we have a voice to scream whatever it is we want to say, but also more and more we live in a world that also doesn't want to hear it. And so it's if we're shouting louder and louder and we're hearing less and less that's going on around this. And this analogy was so compelling inside of my mind, this was almost the name of the series. All, you know, the whole seven weeks, megaphones and earplugs, but I thought that there was more that we wanted to accomplish and cover uh, during the course of our time together. Uh, but I want to illustrate this for you uh, out inside of the book of Acts. Uh, Acts chapter 7 or is, yeah, is where I want to read for you uh, just a bit. Inside of the book of Acts, as the church begins to grow, the apostles in the beginning of, of chapter 6 are overwhelmed with just the number of needs and the amount of needs that are before them. And so uh, they select for themselves, they, you know, they said it's not good that just you leaders, you apostles are burdened with all the work of ministry. And so what if we set aside uh, some additional members of our body to help engage in the work of ministry? And so they set aside, amongst others, a man named Stephen. And we read about Stephen that he is a man who is full of faith, and he's full of the, the power of God at work inside of his life. God's grace was evident upon him. And so Stephen, uh, along with the others, begins to engage in the work of the church, and so the church continues to grow and continues to expand uh, throughout these months that, that go on from there. The opposition continues to rise against the church, and Stephen, in particular, because he is a man full of faith and full of, you know, the power of God that's at work in him, Stephen moves from being at the periphery of ministry to then being engaged in ministry to then being at the center of controversy. And so towards uh, uh, the middle of chapter 6, you come across, I think, a couple of phrases that describe our culture very well sometimes. And it says that in the midst of opposition, that there were some who, who secretly, secretly persuaded some of the men inside of the Jewish leadership against Stephen. And there's this kind of this secret persuasion that, you know, we're going to get this grassroots effort against the church and against Stephen. Going on down a little bit further, it says they stirred up some of the people and the elders and the teachers and, and those inside the Sanhedrin. And so secretly persuading wasn't enough, and there was stirring up that took place. And then finally they seized him and they brought him uh, before the council there. And while this may not take place physically, you know that in, inside of the secret, secret persuasion and then the stirring up, uh, eventually it seems like uh, people and ideas and, and events inside of our culture then all of a sudden get brought before uh, the whole world, you know, through the internet. And every, all of a sudden everybody knows about this one thing that took place. So they bring Stephen before the council, and they ask him, what do you have to say for yourself? Perhaps the, the longest sermon we have recorded in scripture uh, is inside of Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen goes on to give a history of the nation of Israel, and all the ways that God tried to reach out to his people, but they remained hardened. All the ways that God was so gracious and wonderful, and yet the people backslid. And so he goes through all of this, and, and towards the end, it, it gets pretty dicey because Stephen doesn't hold back, and he makes some strong statements against who they are. And you get the reaction of the crowd. That's where I want to pick this up inside of verse uh, 54 of chapter 7. It 
When the members of the Sanhedrin heard this, they were furious, and they gnashed their teeth at him. Anybody ever gnashed their teeth? I don't know if we do this anymore, but you, you get the picture of what, what's taking place here. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked up to heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. At this they covered their ears and yelling at the top of their voices, they all rushed at him. Dragging him out of the city, began to stone him. Meanwhile, the witnesses laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. While they were stoning him, Stephen prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And the final verse, chapter 7, is uh, Stephen uh, dying. So up in verse number 57, it says that they'd gotten to a place, again, after all the dialogue, after all the opposition, seizing Stephen, Stephen gets gets a chance to, to say what he has to say. It offends him so much that they ears and they yell at the top of their lungs and rush after him. And I don't want to trivialize, you know, Stephen as the first martyr in the church or somehow just, you know, spin this around and make it a nice, cute little metaphor for us, but I think this is a metaphor that looms large from that point even through till now and maybe even more so now that as a society sometimes we get to a place where it's almost like the la, 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 like where we cover our ears and we yell at the top of our voice, and you think that if I just yell louder and plug my ears harder, I'm going to make a difference. It's going to get through. So you realize the person on the other side is doing the exact same thing. And so that's uh, the metaphor that's in front of us. It's more civilized now, maybe. It's less violent now, most of the time. But that's the same type of interpersonal relationship uh, that's taken place inside of our culture. It is just not non-Christian towards Christian. Sometimes it's Christian towards non-Christian. Sometimes it's even Christian towards Christian. And so this is not something that we get to observe about what everyone else is doing. We sometimes do this ourselves, even inside the church. I want to list before you a, a few statements, and this is going to be rapid fire, one, because uh, of our time and where our time is and where I knew our time would be, but the second is we could get easily lost in each one of these statements for uh, five or ten minutes each, and so I'm simply just going to list them for you, maybe just give a one-sentence explanation. This is the world I think that we live in. Th- this is some, some of the place, not just that you have to survive, but you get to th- we have to ask the question, to what degree are these things at work in me? That's a discipleship question. But then also, to what degree do I need to be resourced inside of knowing this to make a difference inside the world in which I live? All right, so here they are. The first uh, connected disconnection. What that means is we are more connected than ever to people, to information, to ideas, We live as a whole, in general, in closer proximity to people than we ever have, and yet there's never been more loneliness, isolation, and people feeling like they were alone walking through life. You can get everything that you need, and so the symbol of our culture is somebody walking down the street with headphones on, lonely in the midst of a crowd, or that you pull into your suburban home inside your garage. 
garage with your privacy fence, even your, all of your supplies and even all of your food can be delivered to your door and you don't have to see another human being. Isn't that awesome? Yes and no, right? Connection, connected disconnection. The second is polarization. I don't have to tell you this because we are in the, at the very beginning of an election year. Politically, but also in other areas, never have we been more polarized. Where it seems like there is no middle, it's the far right and the far left. And beyond that, even on little issues, it seems like even more and more we are just so opinionated and more polarized than ever. A la carte causes. You have the ability now just with uh, a like or a share uh, that you can be a, a person who is engaged and active in, inside of feeling like you're making a difference without ever getting off of your couch. That is a great thing, but sometimes it lulls us into thinking that we've done something because we, we've just liked or, or shared or forwarded something or sent a check and we've not actually engaged, but even more than that, because we've done something over off the hook from doing things across the other areas inside of our life and we pick and choose just like you remember the a la carte days of walking down and I'm going to have one of these and one of these and just pay for each thing individually. That's the way uh, in which our culture engages by and large in, inside of activism and causes and ways to make a difference. The fourth is outrage and a lack of civility. We don't know how to be nice. We don't know how to have a conversation. Most of us, we become so insulated because of, again, disconnected connection, uh, that we have lost the ability to ha have a conversation with somebody who thinks differently than us. As if we think that to have a conversation means that we're going to give them more clout to their idea, and so we become insulated, we become isolated, and we've lost the ability to critically think. We blast the other side. We become angry experts. And I've made a statement before that it seems like inside of our culture we are most happy when we're mad at something. Because there's this righteous anger that we have towards whatever that makes us feel just slightly superior. Again, this is not to blast us in the room, but I think it again begs two questions. To what degree are these things at work in me? But also this is the place and this is the culture where God has placed me to make a difference, that maybe things could look different than this, or the gospel could penetrate this. The fifth is entitlement and comparison. Uh, this is not just uh, we love to rage against the, the younger generation and say that they are entitled, but across our denomination or our denomination across our society, we look and say, uh, "I should have this. Things should be this way." And even the comparison, it used to be that you had to know the Joneses to keep up with the Joneses. Now the Joneses are on Facebook and every picture is doctored and it's only the best moments, it's the highlight reel of their life, and yet that's what we compare our lives to. The final one is arrogance and yet insecurity. Now I'll start with younger people because there's a book that I was reading by uh, Tim, El Tim Elmore talking about Generation Z, which is mostly, mostly the kids who are in school now. Uh, our elementary kids up through our high schoolers. And he said, one of the things that marks that generation is there is this tough exterior, almost to the point of bragging or arrogance because there is so much achievement and accomplishment because we've made so many things available to our kids. 
yet on the backside, they don't know how to experience and work through failure. Because you've always won, then you don't know how to deal with it when you lose. And so the idea of a helicopter parent has now been replaced with the idea of a lawnmower pa parent. The lawnmower parent not just goes ahead of the child, but actually mows down any difficulties in front of them. Here's the point. This is not just a young people thing. This arrogant insecurity is in every boardroom, in every meeting room, in most companies that you know. Because we have that thick exterior, but then as soon as somebody begins to push back against what I think or point out the ways where I'm wrong, all of a sudden I become the victim. And so, very tough on the outside, but yet not a whole lot of fortitude on the inside. Captures not just our kids, but our adults, because where do you think our kids are learning it? In what ways does this apply to us? Are these things at work maybe a little bit in me, or is number one and number four a little bit in me, and the others not so much? You know, I'm not online, I feel connected, but yet. We have to ask the question, to what degree is what's taking place in culture also taking place in me? But I think we also have to say, God, how can you use me to make a difference in this? Because sometimes I just want to pull up the covers and hope that Jesus is going to come soon, because I don't like where our culture has gone. The reality is God has placed you here amongst kids and grandkids, and neighbors and people you work with. Uh, this is the society, this is the culture that you've been placed in. So again, moving pretty quickly, we could talk about all these things more. I want to give you just three things, three ways I think that we can make a difference. The first, and this is the one that I'm going to talk about most, is to be a thermometer, not, or to be a thermostat, not a thermometer. You know the difference, right? Thermometers are, are valuable. They tell the temperature. You need a thermometer at times. They are useful. All the thermometer does, though, is tell the temperature. It doesn't change anything. We think that we're doing something by telling the temperature. We think that we've done something by acknowledging and saying, you know, this is taking place and it's not right. And I think God's looking for a group of people to be not just people who can accurately tell the temperature, but can set the temperature. That things are different when you show up. The conversations change, and all of a sudden there's less gossip taking place around the water cooler because you walk in the room. There's encouragement where there is no encouragement because you walk in and are willing to give someone else a compliment and not just fight for what's yours. The conversations inside of our, our families, how we live our lives, how we use our words, set the temperature, don't, don't just reflect the temperature. I believe 80% of the people can be a thermometer. It doesn't take a whole lot of skill, it doesn't take a whole lot of intellect, it doesn't take a whole lot of experience. 80% of the people you know can walk in and tell the temperature. It's a much harder thing and a much rarer thing to be somebody who can walk in and set the temperature. You have the opportunity to make things different through your words and through your actions, and to not just go along with what's taking place, but to be people who raise the room a degree or two by who you are in Jesus.
The second, I, I think, is to work on building a tender heart and a thick skin. This goes back to that arrogant and yet insecure thing. Most of the time, one author says that our culture looks like a group of people who are hard-hearted and thin-skinned. We have no patience or, or uh, willingness to walk alongside of somebody else, but yet as soon as we feel the slightest bit of attack, we feel marginalized and victimized. And he said, I, I wonder then if the task of discipleship is for Jesus to soften my heart while at the same time thickening my skin. That even to the point that you can experience even somebody else saying something wrong about you and it doesn't ruin your day. Because God's given you not, not just a tender heart for that person, but the willingness to say that my life is not defined by what gets said or postured about me. My life is built from the inside out. And so I can endure. The third thing is to create time for what's real. That is not an accusation that what you're living for now is fake or is false. But it's just saying that we need to do more of the things that contribute to where we want to be and where we want the world around us to be. And so maybe it's time to close Facebook and pick up the phone and call an old friend. Maybe it's time instead of uh, watching the news, but to turn it off and to pray for our world. Maybe it's time to find somebody who disagrees with you, but that you are close with, and sit down and have a conversation. Maybe it's time to take your small group deeper by you yourself sharing something that's more vulnerable and personal and real and not allowing just the same old casual conversation to take place. If we're going to make a difference inside of our culture more than ever, it's going to require us to live by a different pattern. A different pattern maybe than we've been living, but certainly a different pattern than the world one we see lived out in front of us. There's so much we could talk about, and lucky for you, our time is gone. Uh, but if you want more information, uh, this is what we're going to continue to talk about on Wednesday evening in this, the small group that goes along with this. But again, back to those two questions. To what degree is this at work inside of me? I don't believe that being a Christian in this day and age is to just add in a little bit of Jesus with everything else that's going on with culture, but to live counterculturally lives that make a difference in the midst of culture. So what degree, degree are these things that work inside of me? And then second, maybe what is God calling me to do different or to live differently in order to make a difference inside of this culture? Now, next week... We're going to shift gears and we're going to talk about words from the standpoint of uh, those quotes inside of our past, those words that have shaped us both positively and negatively. And again, we're, kind of, we're building on this foundation from the, you know, the theology of words to then the culture we live in to then next week talking about our past and some of those words that have been active inside of our lives. And so uh, continue with us. Again, if you have any questions, any thoughts, I uh, would love to hear those. And uh, let's be people who live differently in the midst of a megaphone and ear earplug kind of world. Uh, let's pray together. Father, I pray that you would go with us this week. I pray that you would uh, shape us to live differently than uh, the culture around us. I pray that you would use us to make a difference, that somehow in the, the sphere of influence that you've given us, Lord, maybe there's just one or two things that we
we do differently in order to make a difference? Father, we know that uh, in all the challenges and in all the blessings of what it means to live in the here and in the now, you're a God who is faithful. You're a God who is still seated on the throne, and you have not left your church without the resources it needs to make a difference. Would you help us collectively and would you help us individually uh, to be people who engage and to make a difference inside the world in which you've placed us? For we ask these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.